1: I so appreciate you being here this week and joining me for the conversation with one of Broadway's best set designers. If you want to follow along with more of my socials, future interviews, Instagram takeovers, and more, you can find all that at bpn.fm backslash real talk. Now into the episode. So joining me today, we have Derek McLean, the genius Broadway set designer. His Tony award winning work can be seen in Moulin Rouge Worldwide MJ the musical, Anything Goes, Beautiful, the Carol King musical, A Soldier's Play, Sunday in the Park with George, and so many more iconic productions. Even if you aren't fully invested in Broadway or theater, Derek has designed the set for the Oscars several times, creating some of the most iconic award show sets that I can remember. After seeing Moulin Rouge both on tour and on Broadway, I am so excited to discuss Derek's design and his career, along with his new book. Hi, Derek.
0: Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction.
1: Nice to meet you too. I'm so excited for you to be here. To start off, can you tell me how you got started in Broadway and scenic design?
0: Sure. Um, When I was uh, uh, in high school, before I started college, I had uh, done some house construction work, uh, you know, as a summer job. So I knew a bit about construction. And when I was in college, somebody asked me to build a set. And um, I did. And set design was never anything I'd really sort of noticed before I hadn't I'd seen some theater but I hadn't seen a giant amount and I'd never never really contemplated set design until I built this set and I thought wow this is really cool Um, and so I I said that I wanted to design a set and luckily for me um, in college there was no Uh, there was no theater program. Um, it was just entirely an extracurricular activity. So I was able to start designing sets, even though I really had no uh, idea what I was doing at all. I was completely, um, really naive and a real novice at it, but I loved it. I, the the first set I designed was a production of Guys and Dolls that was in a dining room, college dining room. And, um, I, I cringe now when I think about that set, but, um, it I was really, really exciting for me, and that kind of launched me, you know, in this path. And it, it wasn't long before I, I, I realized that I really didn't know what I was doing. And then I met the designer Michael Yerigan, credible set designer, who uh, was and st- actually still is on the faculty of Yale Drama School. And so I kind of threw myself at Michael and said, "Hey, I want to be, uh, I want to be a set designer. What should I do?" And he said, "Well, why don't you apply to Yale?" But he, he looked at my stuff and he said wow, your drawing is pretty terrible. You need. To, um, what he advised was that I stop designing any more undergraduate sets and that I just spend the rest of my time studying drawing because he said it was really, really important that I learned to draw. And so that's what I did.
1: Yeah, and I think that jumps perfectly into my topic of like educational theater of how important do you think that is for finding people's niche in the industry?
0: I think it can be super important. Um, you know, I didn't... Study theater until I decided I'd already decided that I wanted to do it professionally, and then I went to graduate school. so I did not have an undergraduate. I had no undergraduate training in the theater. You know, some people start uh, when they're undergraduate. some people even start when they're in high school, at some uh, if they go to the right school. You know, I can't really say what the right path is for any one uh, anyone person. The one thing I will say is that you know if you were thinking about going to study in an undergraduate setting, not all programs are equal. Uh, some are, are some are better than others, and so it, you know, really depends mostly on who who's who's teaching there. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that any old undergraduate training program is worthwhile. I think some of them are actually not really worthwhile, and some of them are. But you know, people have to sort of make their own judgment uh, on that. And the other thing I'll say is that uh, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with um, you know waiting waiting till you're done with college to sort of make that decision. Um, as I did, because you know, set design is a hard field. It's not for everybody, and um, it's a very competitive business. It's a different, very difficult business to make a living in. Um, extremely difficult. Uh, a lot of people get discouraged and drop out because there just there just really are not not enough jobs for all the people that want to become set designers. So I don't say that to discourage anybody, but um, it's it's not a field you can go into casually. Um, you really have to have i think in order to make a career of it you have to have talent and you have to work really hard and you also have to have some luck i think you, you know you do do some good luck as well
1: and for the future of broadway and the future of what you want to do mm-hmm. with your shows and your designs what are some ways that we can create more jobs and opportunities to get people into the industry and be able to have a more inclusive field in said design but also across broadway
0: well um I mean, in order to get more people into it, um, you know, I think the world of the theater needs needs to increase. You know, there needs to be more shows. Talented people will always find a way in, but I think, you know, to really expand it, there would need to be more shows than there are right now. Um, it's, it's a challenging time right now because Broadway is not doing very well at the moment. Um, it's, you know, it's struggling. It, you know, financially it's struggling because uh, I think, you know, a variety of things, but mostly linked back to the pandemic and, um, you know, the attendance is down right now. And so uh, I think in the short term, that makes there's some challenges, but I think probably in the long-term Broadway will, you know, I'm sure it will flourish again. It always does. There's a lot of efforts underway to, um, to make the world of Broadway uh, and design in particular, more uh, inclusive. There's a number of organizations um, in New York, uh, some of which are operating nationally to encourage that. So I think, um, there's a long way to go, uh, but there's, but there are, there are efforts being made for sure.
1: Yeah. And I love how you say that Broadway will flourish again. It always does because it does. It does. And some of the best shows are open right now. Um, specifically some of your shows like Moulin Rouge is a spectacle beyond compare. It's so good. Um, every single detail and best play this year is going to be tough um, for the Tony Awards because there's so many amazing works of art. Mm, It's true. Um, And I hope that it flourishes for them and after
0: them. I agree. Yeah, no, I think um, already the season artistically is off to a really uh, strong, strong start. And as you say, uh, Broadway goes through cycles and, um, you know, we've been through, I've, I've lived in New York for a long time now and I've seen all sorts of cycles. I've seen a couple of recessions. Uh, stock market crashes and also 9/11. And 9/11 was an enormous challenge for the for the theater. And you know, we, I I remember at the time we wondered if if we would all survive. You know, our, our businesses would survive, and and they did. And um, I have no doubt that we'll survive this one as well.
1: Absolutely. Diving into your design process. Yeah. What are some pre-production steps that you have, like discussions with the director, uh, going through uh, meetings with designers. Some of Broadway's best that you've worked with, like Natasha Katz, Justin Townsend, Howell Binkley and Peter Negrini, all those people. Yeah. Going through all of that pre-production. What is your process for that?
0: Well, number step number one, of course, is always reading, reading the script. And if there's music, listening to the music and developing my own first impressions based on that reading. Uh, I think that experience you get the first time you read something is super important because that's the closest in a way you're going to have to what the audience experiences. You know, the audience is not, by the time the show opens, those of us working on it have seen it dozens, if not more times, and the, the audience is seeing it for the first time. And so I think it's really important to try to sort of figure out what it is, what the essence of a story is when you first experience it and try to Try to hang on to that because that's going to mean something to the audience who's seeing it. Uh, and there are different ways to do that. Um, taking notes, talking about it with somebody that, you know, certainly the director and uh, sometimes collecting uh, images, anything you can do to kind of hang on to that, that first, those first impressions is super important. Um, then I always meet with the director um, and I try to find out as much as I can what the director dreams for the show, what, um, you know, the, I, I like to start with a place where there is no budget um, and, and to say, you know, this show could be, if the show could be anything, what would it be? Um, what, what is your, you know, I wanna hear what the director's sort of fantasy production of the show is. Even that that involves some things that are not possible or feasible. Um, I think that's a really useful place to start. And I also try to identify that for myself. Like what are the things that if I could do anything I would do. And again, I try to hang on to that. You know, I sometimes will write, if something pops out as really important, I, I write that down so that I can refer back to it. So, so that as I sometimes get mired in problem solving, I'm, I'm not losing sight of the, the main goal. And then, um, you know, after after that meeting with a director, or maybe sometimes before I start doing some research, I do a lot of research. And the research, you know, might be based on time and place and period of the show, but it may also be based on mood uh, and feeling. And, you know, sometimes the time and the place of the show isn't really that important, but there are other things that are important. So it's trying to find images that that capture the the feel, that feeling you have when you read it and that feeling that the director describes when he or she um, is, you know, is first talking about the, the story. And then after that, after, you know, sort of collecting some research or a lot of research, I start sketching, I start doing doodles, and by doodles I mean really, really super fast drawings, often many of them taking two or three or five minutes. And you know, they're 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 like the sort of equivalent of gesture drawings in a figure drawing class. You know, it's and I draw all that by hand um, because it's fast, it's super fast. They're not pretty, they're often frequently not anything I would ever even show the director. They're they're for me to work out some ideas and often often to try a lot of ideas quickly, like you know, let's say that there's a living room. You know, I know I have some idea of what's required from the script, but you know, I want to I want to sort of quickly explore like ten different ways to do that that living room. Some of them will be terrible uh, and unusable, but usually, out of that exploration, something you know exciting starts to happen. And then, from those very crude you know scribbles of drawings, I, I then anything that looks promising, I start to clean up and make into a, a drawing that's maybe clear enough to actually discuss with the director. But I generally don't put color in them. These are frequently just, you know, line drawings. Color and a lot of detail will come later, um, and it does once things start to get a little more specific. And so I, you know, I eventually move on maybe to some more detailed drawings, sketches. But really, the the crucial thing I think for me and for many other designers is is making is that scale model. You know, getting to a scale model. And again, those start rough. The first couple of versions of the scale model. Are usually not something the director would ever see. These are just rough drafts, and you know, we' it's not uncommon for us to make five or six or seven different rough drafts of a of a, one particular thing in the set until so it starts to actually feel right. And then once I once it starts to feel right, that's when I bring the director in and and start looking at, at, at models. And then you know, if it's a show with scene changes like like Moulin Rouge or MJ, you know, that's a huge part of this all always is figuring out it's not you know it's one thing to design an individual set, but in the context of a show with with, with different scenes, you've got to always be thinking about what is the transition gonna be like because the transitions can be just as much a part of the experience as the set itself. Absolutely. And then eventually, so you know that was sorry, just to finish that off, that you know, after 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 you know a kind of design is Achieved in the model, and the director feels good about it, and then the producer feels good about it, and the other designers, the lighting designer and the costume designer, have been brought in, and maybe the sound designer, depending on, on the requirements of the show. Then from there, um, you know, once the design is sort of solidified, then we do we draft it. Um, we do uh, you know scale drawings that are like an architect's drawings, and those are the things that we then take to the shops for bids so that they can price the design and we can figure out you know whether whether the set is affordable or not
1: that's fascinating
0: and usually it's not affordable usually <laughs> usually <laughs> in most cases we we discover it's too expensive and then we have got to figure out some ways to to pair it back
1: and it's always fantastic
0: yeah well thank you with the lucky land
2: slots you can get lucky just about anywhere No purchase necessary. Void are prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: With all that, what kind of documentation do you keep? Like, do you keep all those first uh, figure drawings through the renderings? Or is it just like something where you easily forget the beginnings and shape it around what it becomes?
0: I, do, I don't necessarily keep all of them. I mean, some of them are so ridiculous that um, they're not worth keeping. But uh, I keep a lot of them, um, you know, even if they're not, Sometimes there's some things I do that I like, but they, for one reason or another, they aren't right. And so I particularly enjoy keeping those because um, it's they're interesting. And also because sometimes you find, might find some other project to use something like that on. Um, so, you know, and actually, truth be told, I do most of my drawing now on an iPad and Procreate. So it's um, pretty easy to save all this stuff. I mean, I, I throw away some of the Procreate documents sometimes, but it's pretty easy to keep a record that way. and. Um, so, yeah, they exist. Not that anybody necessarily wants to see them. And by the way, just to just to clarify, they're not actually figure drawings. What I meant was that they're they're done sort of at the speed of of gesture drawings in a figure drawing class, but they're they're actually drawings of sets.
1: Yeah. So I have to show specific questions, and I will warn you now. I will keep referring to *Moulin Rouge* throughout the entire interview, because that's like the only thing that I've actually been able to witness in person. Okay. Um, But with Moulin Rouge, you were talking about research and the cohesive picture of like the Moulin Rouge, as it relates to the club in Paris is like a velvet wonderland. And I love how you transformed the Al Hirschfeld to take on that form of a can-can dance club. What research had you used to get to that point?
0: Well, it's just interesting. I mean, a lot of that actually wasn't based on research. A lot of that was just based on an image uh, in my head. Um, I mean, the actual Moulin Rouge didn't look anything like that. You know, the, the Moulin Rouge in 1899 looked more like a dance hall with a giant wooden floor um, and a stage, but um, it was not particularly lush, actually. The And then the Moulin Rouge now is a, is a much more modern thing. It doesn't have any red velvet on the walls. Um, i mean it's 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 great for what it is it's just a different it's a totally different kind of experience um but this really was born out of um in the first draft of the script that I read, John Logan's description of the club was uh it just said the club sex and smoke and um I thought that was such a such a great description. I love when a playwright gives you something provocative like that, um but that's not too specific so and actually, the, the, the Red Velvet came about in kind of a slightly accidental way, which is, which is sort of interesting, which is that we did the show, before we did it on Broadway, we did it at the Colonial Theater in Boston. And I had gone up to see Alex Timbers, the director, and I went up to see it you know, early on, probably nine months before. We were going there, we went to look at it. And, you know, we were basically asked by the producer to go look at it, make sure it looked okay to us. And we went in and the walls of the of the colonial theater were red. They were painted red. And we said, well, this is perfect. And it had great, a beautiful gold ornate detail. So we thought this is perfect. So then what happened was um, probably about three months before we went to, you know, the show was due in Boston. Uh, I got a call from somebody who was up there and said, I think it was somebody on the technical staff who had gone up to scout some things. And he, he called me up and said, by the way, I, you, I'm sure you know this, but I just thought I should just give you a heads up that, in case you didn't, that, you know, the theater's um, are covered in green wallpaper uh, because they just did a big renovation. And I thought he was joking at first. And he, he said, no, no, it's green, it's green wallpaper. And I said, well, can we paint it? And they said, no, because now it's not only that they covered in green wallpaper, it's now landmarked, like, because apparently green was the original, this was like the original color for when they built it. The red was some kind of aberration. And so, you know, I was sort of panicked. I was like, well, we can't do Moulin Rouge, in a green theater. That doesn't make any sense. And we, you know, Alex and I had already determined that we wanted to do this somewhat environmentally in theater anyway. Um, and so I said, well, can we cover the walls? You know, like, and they said, "In what? And I said, I don't know, red velvet and they said yeah sure we can do that um and so we you know we added up the number of yards we needed to cover the walls of the theater and it was some abs- absolutely absurd absurd amount of of yardage and and we went to look and there was there was there was no source for enough fabric to cover the you know there was no one red velvet that we could get that would cover that much of the of, of the walls there was like we could get enough to do a third of the room and so then I just said, well, let's just make a virtue of that. And so we ended up using um, 11 different red fabrics to cover the walls. And so a lot of them are velvets, different types of velvet, cut velvet, velvet brocade, some sat, some red satin, a bunch of different fabrics. And, um, you know, the, the sort of justification I had in my mind for all these was, was that Harold Zidler, the impresario of the club, had actually put the thing together on a shoestring and he'd gone broke doing it. And so, you know, he had a spectacular imagination, but not quite enough money to do it. And so that was sort of the aesthetic of this thing was it was like it looked fantastic at first glance. And if you looked a little more carefully, you saw some of the seediness of the whole thing. You saw that it was actually not entirely professional the way it was put together. Um, And so that that sort of I think that added a kind of layer of charm to the to the whole thing that it's not actually slick. It's, it has a little bit of a, as impressive as, as it might be when at first glance, it actually has a little bit of a homemade feeling to it. I love that. That's so creative. And the same extent to the wiring, you know, we have, a, we have something like I think a 6,000 light bulbs in the set, but, you know, in a couple of spots, if you look closely, we sort of faked bad wiring as if, you know, they hadn't really gotten a licensed electrician to do all this stuff. It's like, you know, maybe one of Harold Zidler's wired this stuff up One of Harold Zidler's friends
1: the club was not built by ayatsi union members
0: yeah exactly even though it really was but
1: um so when you designed sunday in the park with george you perfectly encapsulated like the scenery of the painting and i wanted to know your um thought process of adapting the painting for the stage and the show
0: well i mean the the painting that we did on stage really was as much as we were able to really meant to mimic the the painting i mean that was really the that was really the idea it really wasn't meant to be anything else because the painting doesn't exist at the beginning but you see the painting come to life so i you know i really did tried not to vary from Surratt's painting any more than i had to i mean there were very few adaptations that were made it was really like blowing up parts of the painting and and um, and cutting them out. I mean, we didn't actually do it digitally. We It was done by painters, but, um, but yeah, that's how it was done.
1: Awesome. Getting more towards tech rehearsals and getting the show up on its feet before previews, what is your role at that point to um, handle automation that has been coming up more and more with shows, um, but also making sure that it's ready to go up for the first preview?
0: Well... Luckily for all the shows that I designed, is not dependent on me to uh, make the automation ready. <laughs> there are people who are way more um, who are actually skilled at that. I don't even really exactly know how the automation works. To be honest, I mean, I, I, I kind of know how it works on a mechanical level. I don't I don't understand any of the electronics that control it. So it really, you know, there's not that much I have to do in terms of making it sure it be ready, except to make sure that the right people get hired to do that. Because you know, if you if you work with great technical supervisor and great shops, uh, they they really handle getting it ready, you know, according to this to the to the schedule. Really, my job and all of that, you know, sometimes um, sometimes it needs people need an encouraging uh, push from me um, if they're behind to try to get you know get things back on track. But that doesn't happen all that often. But the the things that I really have to do in tech tend to be more uh, creative. Like if we have automation it's figuring out the the queuing of the automation you know because you may it's not it's not all that unusual to have you know five or six or seven or even sometimes 10 axes of automation all going simultaneously some some things going off stage and some other things going on stage and so there's a lot uh, there's a lot of sort of art to the transition that comes in those timings and, you know, you can describe it to ha- ahead of time, which you have to do in order to get somebody to write the cues for it, because there's a, there's a computer that controls all the speeds of all that stuff. But inevitably, once you see it, you, you want to adjust it. And um, it, has, it often has to do very much with, this, with the text. So what is, what is happening on stage? Is, is somebody speaking during the transition? Is somebody singing during the transition? Or are neither of those things happening? And so they have to do with, you know, sort of what order you want to see things at. Do you want everything to finish at exactly the same time? Or do you want something to lag? Do you want it to go quickly? Do you want it to go slowly? Um, you know, do you want all the scenery that's on stage to go off first and then bring the next scene on? Or do you want them to pass each other? Do you want all the, you know, do you want everything to be coming on as the old scenery is going off? So those are all, those are all decisions that, you know, that I make usually with the director. Um, about, you know, and that has so much to do with how the story unfolds on stage.
1: That's mind blowing to how all that works. And being the type of person that I am, I often like search for videos on how automation works and there's nothing. Like YouTube has plenty of stuff on lighting design which is how I've learned everything that I know. But there's Mm -hmm. nothing on automation and I wish that I could get a seat into the theater to watch all that happen.
0: Well, I can I can tell you sort of briefly, there's sort of two, you know, there's two major types of automation you'll see in, a, say, a Broadway musical. There's the deck automation mm-hmm. and there's the fly automation. And the fly automation is really just um, a winch, an electric winch that is pulling on the counterweight, you know, in the wings, you know, the old fashioned manual kind of, of moving a flying scenery was a person pulling a rope that moved a counterweight that in the counterweight on the other end of the rope from the counterweight was the piece of scenery. Mm -hmm. And so if it's automated, you basically, somebody has installed a winch, an electric winch, which just runs that counterweight up and down, Um, which just means um, that you have, you know, you have really great reliable control over the speed at which that moves. And then the deck automation, uh, which is things moving on the floor, you know, furniture going on and off and large set pieces, those are all run from, winch winches that run cables through the floor like every every broadway musical puts on its own show deck uh that's designed specifically for that show and if it's got winch if it's got an automation in it there are these little grooves in the floor and underneath underneath those grooves are cables uh like you know aircraft cable and the aircraft cables are run by winches and and then the pieces of scenery that go on and off stage slot down into uh, that cable and that's what moves it uh that's what moves that stuff on and off stage and you have, you have a lot of control over the speed and you can make it accelerate and decelerate and all that kind of stuff as it goes on and off stage. And so those are, those are the sort of, you know, there's other types of automation that are more hybrid or more unusual, but those are, that's sort of, that's probably 90% of the automation you see in any show.
1: That's awesome. Now zoom is telling me that I have like around 10 minutes, but I do want to get to your um, book, which just came out designing Broadway. Yeah. Can you give us a description of what that book is and what you hope that it brings to people?
0: Sure, absolutely. So I wrote this with a a writer named Isla Mel. It was her idea to do this book. She came to me with the idea. And, you know, I was a little surprised at first. I hadn't really thought of myself as having a a book about my work. And, um, you know, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, I I didn't really feel like I was quite ready for a book that was entirely about my work. Um, I'm so aware of how influenced I am by my colleagues, by the other designers working in in the field and also by some designers who came before me and so you know I said look I would love to do this book if I can make it about about my work but also in the context of the influences from the other the, the many other designers work who, who, who I admire so much and so that became sort of the organizing idea of the book and uh, so it does include uh, many other designers work in it and different examples of different types of set and and one of the things that I tried to do was group sets by roughly by themes and it's a kind of an imprecise process but you know there's a series of sets in one section about sets that are are based on realism and there's a series of sets based on surrealism and there's, there's a section on sets with a lot of rapid scene changes and there's a section on Big American musicals, and so the, you know there's, there's a bunch of different sections to the book. And so, what I try to do in the book, um, what I Mel and I tried to do, is was show the way I and other designers tackle sort of similar problems, and try to you know it's it's a way of I think trying to show the breadth of decisions and choices that get made, you know, behind every and behind every design and every and every production, and try to give some insight into the thinking that goes into into uh, making the world of making the visual world of a show
1: yeah and I think that's so important to upcoming designers but also those who are still working and being influenced by their colleagues around them and I can't wait to um, get the book I plan on looking into that this week to make sure that I get a copy
0: Um, uh, yeah and you know I I hope that the book will be interesting to designers, but also to non-designers, people who who love the theater, uh, because I think it it does offer glimpses. There's also a lot of directors who are included in the book too. And I think it does offer a lot of glimpses into how how shows are made creatively, um, you know, from a, in the physical, in the physical realm.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to um, be able to see more of your beautiful sets in the theater, but also just the production images of how wonderful your designs are.
0: Thank you so much. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise.
2: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?